Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words that are spoken and the words that are heard be blessed by you, the living word. Amen. When we meet those early disciples in the story we heard today, they are very disoriented. The events that have taken place are difficult to make sense of. That's an understatement, really. They're trying to sort it all out, and it isn't easy. One thing I notice in the encounters between the resurrected Jesus and his disciples is that they don't necessarily seem happy to see him. We don't read much about the disciples being happy or excited or relieved, at least not at first. Instead, we find a mix of reactions. Our scripture today is one of those places where we see this. It says the disciples were startled and terrified. Doubt is arising in their hearts. They feel joy, but even in their joy, they were disbelieving and they were wondering. It's a whole mix of emotions and responses, a mix that suggests that the disciples are disoriented. And who could blame them? It has been a long day at the end of a long week. You see, we here today may be three weeks out from Easter Sunday, but the events we heard from Scripture today take place on that first Easter day. It had been a long day, and many miles traveled. The day began with an empty tomb at early dawn, continued with a walk along the road toward Emmaus, where two of the disciples saw Jesus again. It continued on as the two returned to Jerusalem and joined the other disciples. These Emmaus travelers told the other disciples about the encounter on the way to Emmaus. And while they were talking about this, the scripture says, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. It had been a very long day, and the disciples were quite disoriented. It had been a very long day, a day which followed three days of such intensity as to exhaust anyone. Three days of fear, of witnessing their beloved teacher being arrested and put on trial and crucified, and the grief, that long, empty day of grief after the crucifixion before that early morning of the first day. The disciples of the first century are not alone in being disoriented. It is disorienting. Trying to wrap our heads around an idea like resurrection. It defies logic and the normal order of things. It is disorienting. And Jesus shows up right in that place of disorientation right in that place where we feel doubt and fear and joy and wonder and disbelief, that's where Jesus meets us. The resurrected Jesus greets his disciples in an ordinary way. Peace be with you. This was a typical greeting. Then Jesus asked them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? I've never liked that question, that why. 
To me, it makes perfect sense for the disciples to be frightened and doubting. But though he asks why, probably rhetorically, Jesus doesn't criticize or rebuke them. Jesus is not bothered by the disciples' doubts. He accepts the disciples, even with their doubts. And more than that, Jesus wants to help answer the doubts, wants to help orient them in the midst of their disorientation. I see this as a way Jesus speaks directly to skepticism and therefore directly to many of us. I'm glad to see Jesus minister to his disciples in the face of their doubt because I think doubt is a very important part of our faith. There are a lot of things in the scriptures and in Christian doctrine that tell us what to believe, but for many of us, it isn't always that easy to believe all of it. And I think it is sometimes more faithful to doubt, to raise questions, than it is to simply believe. You see, real encounters with God raise questions. This was true for the disciples, and it is true for us today. When God touches our lives, there's almost always an element of surprise or fear or uncertainty in how we experience that. Part of being human is that we don't really quite know what to do with this amazing, incomprehensible God. How often does our faith startle or terrify us. As the scripture says, seeing Jesus startled and terrified those first century disciples. When do our own encounters with God provoke disbelief and doubt and wonder and joy? Where are those places where we are a bit disoriented, trying to make sense of this amazing, incomprehensible God? If the disciples are doubting and disoriented, Jesus wants to help orient them. In this case, the disciples can't understand resurrection. They saw Jesus die. So what's going on now? Is he a ghost? And Jesus offers a framework to help reorient these disciples. He paints a big picture in which the resurrection is just one piece. There is a phrase in Christian theology, salvation history. I'm strangely fond of this concept, this salvation history. The term refers to the activity of God throughout the span of all history, from before creation, through the creation of the earth and all the earth's inhabitants, to the forming and breaking of covenants, through the exodus from slavery into freedom, Salvation history includes the proclamations of prophets and the appointments of kings. Salvation history includes the advent of Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. Salvation history continues through the presence of the Holy Spirit in creation and in the people. Salvation history includes people of faith trying to live their faith in the world. Salvation history continues through us, through our work and our lives, and salvation history continues into a future yet unrevealed. 
So this is the story of God's activity through the grand span of all time, labeled as salvation history, based on an assumption that God's ultimate intention is to right what is wrong. This is that salvation part, the writing of that which is wrong. Or in more traditional language, to save us or all creation from those places where we go astray from God's intention. In the Christian church, our sacraments always recall the span of salvation history. When we baptize a baby, as we did with Cooper just two weeks ago, we remember the biblical image that before creation, there was water, a chaos of swirl of water. We remember the water of the Red Sea, which was parted when the Israelites moved from slavery into freedom. We remember that Jesus was nurtured in the waters of a womb. When we consecrate the elements for communion, we remember that God is creator of heaven and earth, an earth that produces grain and grape. We remember God as the one who breathed into us the breath of life. We remember God calling God's people into covenant and remember God's faithfulness through every time humans have broken that covenant. We remember Jesus and proclaim that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. All of this is salvation history. I think Jesus is evoking what I would call salvation history as he seeks to reorient his disoriented disciples. In the story, Jesus shows off his physical body, inviting his disciples to touch him and asking them for something to eat. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, he says. But although that is part of the story, it is not the whole story, and I would say it is not even the main point of the story. Jesus wants to say that he is real, more than a ghost. But he needs to say much more than that in order to give meaning to the events that have so disoriented his disciples. And again, this passage of scripture follows directly on the story of the walk to Emmaus. In that passage, we have seen that the disciples could not recognize Jesus right in front of their very eyes until he made that familiar gesture of breaking bread. Our gospel writer is not saying that Jesus returned in some prosaic way where everything is back to normal in which Jesus is with his disciples just as he had been before his death. No, instead, there is something mysterious about Jesus' presence. The gospel writer shows that whatever we don't know about this resurrected Jesus, we do know that this presence is something mysterious and out of the ordinary, yet somehow real. So there is that one piece, that piece of the story which makes the case that Jesus was truly but somehow mysteriously present with his disciples then, and by extension, present with us now. But Jesus' response to the disciples in today's passage shows that his presence itself isn't the whole story. In fact, his presence in itself is not adequate to lend meaning to these dis disorienting events. 
my primary interest in looking at the events described in scripture is making meaning. So I'm happy to go along with Jesus as he leads the way. And Jesus goes on, after demonstrating his presence, to remind us of the whole story, what I would interpret even as salvation history. He refers back to his words, his teachings, his values, his faith, and he reminds us to turn to scripture, to the whole story of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, Jesus points us to the very scriptures the church draws upon in painting the span of salvation history. And Jesus continues forward, just as God's activity in history continues to move forward. Jesus says that we are to be his witnesses. And Jesus gives here just the barest hint of what we are witnesses to. And he says this witness begins in Jerusalem and extends to all the nations. This passage is like a preview of what Luke continues to flesh out in more detail when we get to the book of Acts. And there Jesus says to his followers, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If in this passage Jesus gives us just the barest hint of what we are witnesses to, talking here about repentance and forgiveness. What then is a fuller picture of what it means to be Jesus' witnesses? It means this. We who believe that Jesus came to challenge conventional wisdom and challenge the world's status quo we who believe that Jesus taught a love that is deeper and wider than we can hardly imagine. We who believe that Jesus brought good news particularly to the poor, who believe that Jesus demonstrated particular concern for the oppressed and the excluded. We who believe these things are called to witness to these things. We are called to challenge the status quo of our world. We are called to love more deeply and broadly than we might think we are capable of. We are called to improve the lives of the poor, to work for justice and against oppression, and to include those who have been excluded. The resurrection does not hold much meaning in itself, does not hold much meaning if we consider its merits as one isolated event. The resurrection has meaning only if it continues, only if it is one installment in the grand unfolding of salvation history, only if we are witnesses who carry the message and work of Jesus forward in our day. So Jesus' answer to his disciples, Jesus' attempt to reorient them in the face of disorientation and doubt, even skepticism, Jesus' answer to his disciples orients us in the eternal story of God's work. Jesus' answer then teaches us how to be disciples now. Attempting to make sense of resurrection is as hard now as it was in the first century, maybe harder. The struggle to make sense of it raises our doubts and our skepticism 
It is even disorienting. But in the face of our wrestling, Jesus offers guidance that extends far beyond the interpretation of a single event. Jesus reminds us of the great span of God's work throughout history and points to our part in God's work. So may we answer the call to be disciples of Jesus. May we witness to his life and his legacy of love and justice. May we follow in his footsteps through our own actions of love and justice. Amen.